0: Hello and welcome to Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and uh, this is kind of a different sort of episode. Like a lot of other people, yesterday I learned of the passing of Anthony Bourdain. Uh, it, he's someone that I got to meet, you know, I'm not going to pretend like it was all the time we were hanging out or anything like that, but he's someone I got to meet and had a profound impact on on my life in a, in a really major way. Um, <clears throat> he's a person that's best known to the world as kind of like the, maybe not the inventor, but certainly the perfecter of a certain style of documentary. His ones were centered around food, a travelogue documentary. He did a TV show called No Reservations, followed by a TV show, The Layover, followed by CNN Parts Unknown. He's also appeared in everything from The Simpsons to comic books to mainstream network tv series to this little podcast right here which is why i'm doing what i'm doing right now um tony agreed to do this podcast really early on like he's one of the first people that (laughs) i hit up you know to come on this podcast he's really one of the inspirations for doing this thing while we were shooting we were on two of his shows um for the No Reservations, we just played Jingle Bells in a, in a, in a, on a stage. But in Tony's episode, he opened a closet, and we were in there playing Jingle Bells. And then when he came to Toronto for his TV series, The Layover, we actually took him around the city. And during the process of taking him around the city, he and I talked, and, and Jonah was there too. And we talked punk, as we tend to do. And we talked uh, to Tony about New York punk. In particular, And, you know, this is something that comes up on this show a lot. There are people that talk about punk and, you know, their love of punk music. But they, you know, they they did love it. I'm not going to say that they didn't love it or they, you know, weren't passionate about it. But their involvement was very kind of like surface level. Tony, within five minutes of conversing with him and hearing him bring up bands like we talk about on the show, like The Dots and bring up bands like The Shirts and some of the more obscure bands – I knew that this was someone that I would love to sit down and just punish about the history of punk rock, and so that's why I made this show is so I could punish these people about the history of punk rock. And I hit up Tony really early on, and he said, "Yeah, next time you're in New York, we'll do it." And within the first year, Lauren, my my wife and I went to New York. Uh, she was pregnant with Camden, our third child, uh, for our last trip, and I hit Tony up and I said, "I'm going to be in New York." During this time period, Um, I'd love to have you on the podcast, and it, with celebrities like real celebrities, <laughs> it's hard to kind of nail them down. It's hard to get stuff to happen. Like I can, I can't tell you how many of these episodes with the, some of the bigger name stars required a little bit of jumping through hoops and things like that. But not with him. You know, he just, you know, circled his assistant on the email, and he's like, "This has to happen," and. It happened. You know, they worked together to make sure that I could record my podcast with them. And he, and he just came to my friend, John Orfitt's house and sat down in the living room. And, and we just talked, you know, and we just, you'll hear it. We talked. Uh, so a lot of people have been hitting me up about this episode. A lot of people have been asking me about it and talking to me about it. And so I went back and listened to it. And there were some issues with the audio that I wanted to fix and I wasn't going to re-put up this episode because I, I don't want it to feel like I'm trying to, I don't, I don't know, trying to like gain something off this tragedy, but I I wanted to make sure that it sounded better. And also I kind of wanted this opportunity to talk to people because this has been a pretty, pretty terrible year for me so far uh, on, on just people dying, losing people that I love. Um. And I really wanted the opportunity to kind of like address issues of mental health, issues of depression, because this is something that, you know, I've been open about and I've, and I've talked to people about in over the years, you know, um, and a lot of people are open and talking about it now. But that doesn't seem to be stopping this from happening, you know, um, and this keeps happening. So if you are in any way feeling hopeless right now if you're feeling desperate right now you can always you can always find someone to talk to and you definitely owe it yourself to talk to someone and talk to everyone before you do anything drastic because I think in the moment things can get so dark and it can get so clouded that you can forget that there are people that care about you far beyond your immediate vision you know far beyond your peripheral vision. There are people that care about you all around you and the ripple effects of something like this are terrible. Like obviously Anthony Bourdain's a huge megastar, you know, but the ripple effects of this have been horrific. You know, there's people immediately that knew him that are hurting right now, but there's people like myself that are just met him a few times and are hurting right now because of it. Um, And this isn't to blame him and isn't to blame what he did because he obviously was in a lot of pain. To do something like that to yourself, you really need to find peace that can't be found anywhere else. So this isn't to blame him or to blame his act. But that being said, this act, this act in particular, is not without major major repercussions for everyone around you. So, you know, and I swear to God, I've been there. I know how terrible it feels. And I know it feels like that'll be the way to stop the pain. But before you do anything, please, please talk to someone. Um, Talk to anyone. Doesn't have to be someone you know. You could write me an email, leftfordamian at gmail.com. That's my my actual email address. Um, and, and if you don't feel like you can get through, write me. I'm not saying I can make things better or that I can, you know, but I, I, I'll be someone else to talk to. <sighs> Did not expect to be this upset. I think it's also uh, dealing with everything that went on this past year with my my mom passing and and some other friends passing it's been it's been a hard year and when you when you see someone so full of life so full of joy and someone that like almost their their ethos was grabbing the joy and grabbing the the happiness from the jaws of sadness and bleakness and desperation like he went around the world you know this isn't to say that he was a savior or anything like that but he went around the world and just went to people's lives and profiled the things that are in their world that he found beautiful or they found beautiful and so to see someone like that unable to see the beauty in life anymore it it hurts it really hurts But we're going to celebrate all the joy he brought. We're going to celebrate all the joy that we have. And we're going to keep fighting to get that joy and that happiness wrestled away from the jaws of bleakness and despair. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Anthony Bourdain, for everything you did, for my entertainment, my friends' entertainment, people around me's entertainment. but specifically what you did for me and the works, the efforts I put out there by believing in them, because it really meant a lot. Anyway, here's Anthony Bourdain on Turned at a Punk, and uh, uh, we'll be back with normal episodes and and things like that in the upcoming weeks, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to talk to everyone. And to give you another chance to listen to one of my favorite conversations I ever got to have. And please, please, uh, stay safe out there, everyone.
1: Anthony, Tony, thank you for coming on this podcast. No, oh, my but, pleasure. No, it's a huge thrill. We met a couple years ago on your show, on the old show. And it, uh, you know, and I would read that you were in a punk. And, you know, mm-hmm. but like... You never know how deep someone is. And in those conversations, I was like, oh my gosh, this goes <laughs> so deep with you. And so, I, and even in the conversation we've had just before I clicked this mic on, oh my God, does it go so deep with you. So I don't want to keep you too much of your time today. So I guess we'll just jump right in. Sure. Which is, how'd you get into punk? Like, do you remember the first uh, time you came across the genre? Well, look. Uh, I
2: started, I came from a musical family. Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up in a house full of records and music. Uh, my dad, uh, had worked for London records as a kid. Um, and then later, I guess, after bouncing around doing various jobs, he found himself uh, working classical music division at Columbia. Okay. My mom was really into opera, uh, but they were pretty open-minded about music and, um, and supportive of any kind of music that I listened to. Um, my first record, I, the first two singles I remember getting were uh, House of the Rising Sun by That's The incredible. Animals and Question Mark and the Mysterians, um, uh, 96 Tears. Yeah. A revenge song. Yeah. Um, so I guess already, you know, that, that very much, particularly Question Mark, had a very sort of punk attitude. I'd say
1: both are proto-punk.
2: Yeah. Like, The Animals are covered by yeah. tons of punk bands the whole way through. Um, I responded, I was an angry kid, even very young uh and i responded uh to certain records you know in those days you know there were albums mm-hmm. and you constructed your identity around the albums in a lot of ways meaning You'd get a physical object, and if you liked the song, you would look at the cover, and you'd look at the back and try to glean clues about who could have made these sounds and how could I be like them. And So I identified very closely with the bands that I was listening to um, early in my life. Cream was very important. Yardbirds, um, uh, Hendrix. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know I went to a lot of concerts even at a young age, but things started that? to go bad. I, I saw uh Janis Joplin, go to the Fillmore, Hendrix, uh, Band of Gypsies. Um, you
1: saw how old were you in your scenes seeing this stuff?
2: 11, 12 My dad would drive into the to the Fillmore East and either take me and himself <laughs> or wait outside while me. Well, yeah. That's awesome. Um, and uh, Joplin was on Columbia, so you mm-hmm. know I had access there. Uh, um, but things started to go wrong in the late sixties in that all my friends who were in bands and the musicians that I admired all started to get really tasteful. They all discovered Graham Parsons, who's a fantastic musician. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. And they be and made beautiful albums, but they all started to get into sort of country rock and melodies and harmonies and things that I constitutionally didn't didn't respond to. That's not what I wanted to hear as a disgruntled, angry, you know, tween. Mm-hmm. Uh so when the first Stooges album came out, that was sort of the crossroads for me mm-hmm. and shortly after that it was the dolls a blue cheer a little bit earlier you know, so i think the regression was blue cheer like was oh my god it's really loud mc5 because they said motherfuckers on an album yeah and and then the stooges which was just it and was and it was a break too because i suddenly was an outcast among my friends like only people who listened to the stooges in 1969 were you know people who spent too much time fixing their cars people who <laughs> took speed yeah. you know like, just not the, not the cool kids by any stretch of the imagination. Did
1: you ever get to see, like, the MC5 or the Stooges or any of those
2: bands? Um, I saw the Stooges, uh, headlining a New Year's Eve show, and I think it was 1972 at the Palladium in New York. It was the, during the Raw Power yeah. era. And it, this was the line. It was Iggy and the Stooges. Underneath them was a band called, oh no, it was Iggy and the Stooges. It might have been Blue Oyster Cult as the top bill. Yeah. I think heading the bill was Blue Oyster Cult. Then it was Iggy and the Stooges. Then it was a band called Teenage Lust. And then opening for all of them was this shit band, Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> Who I thought, these, these guys are going nowhere. Were, this is bogus. Yeah. Were they doing
1: the makeup yet? Oh Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it
2: was just like, <laughs> are you kidding me? I mean, this is so lame. And these guys, thank God, these guys are going nowhere. Did well, Teenage now, Lust so. do anything?
1: I've never heard of that band at I all.
2: I don't remember ever was hearing from them again.
1: Fantastic name. <laughs> um, but that that pre-punk era yeah.
2: was just exactly what I needed to hear at the time. And then um, seeing the Ramones for the first time, that was just, uh, uh, thank God, you know, music is good again. Mm-hmm. It's about what rock and roll should be, you know. Uh Simplistic lyrics, uh, three chords, and a, and a powerful beat. It was just like the antidote to all that was wrong at the time. I mean, at, at, at the time, I was listening to a lot of like art rock. Mm-hmm. I was listening to Roxy Music and Brian Eno. and uh, But once again, uh,
1: that's key to punk, right? Like you see like that influence. Like Devo says, yeah. without Roxy Music, like I, I, I interviewed Mark Mothersbaugh one time, and he was saying, I was like, what was the influence on Devo? Because it just came out of nowhere, Devo, mm-hmm. the sound. He's like... There's one Brian Eno keyboard thing on a Roxy Music song, and that was right. the inspiration for it all. Right. And it's like, wow. So anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off about
2: Roxy Music. It just, I, you're looking back, on it now so much of the music that was considered punk really wasn't punk at all. <laughs> I mean, Blondie wasn't a punk band. Yeah. They were very much associated with punk. <laughs> um, you know, I guess like, like grunge, you know, the, the word came along that describes something else that was happening. Um, but the bands that I responded to the most were, um, that were, with that question, punk. Yeah. Uh, the heartbreakers of Johnny Thunders, which you know, timeless and forever thrilling still to this minute. I listen to that band, L.A.M.F., and I'm, yeah. and I'm just transported to a, a a happy place. Did you
1: see the dolls? Had you seen the dolls before? I'd
2: seen the dolls at the Mercer Arts Center.
1: Oh, you saw them at the Mercer Arts Center? And uh,
2: it was uh, because... Was it the, the communist era? Because, uh, no. Okay. It was in the very, very, very beginning yeah. where people would just stand there with their mouths open wondering, <laughs> what the hell do I do now? I mean, they were so unlike anything else out there. <laughs> yeah. People just weren't sure whether to like them or hate them. All we knew for sure was that Every girl disappeared from our high school on weekends to go see the dolls. Every girl in the tr- New Jersey, New York tri-state area it, it was suddenly gone and, and going to doing quaaludes and going to uh, uh, going to dolls shows. Mm-hmm. It was phenomenal in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where you had to be. Yeah, pretty much. It was like where are all the girls going. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I gotta go see this band of dolls. I, I wasn't sure either. Um, I, 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 in fact. Uh, I was not a, a, a Maniac Dolls fan. I sort of caught up with David Johansson later. Yeah. Uh, but the
1: the Heartbreakers was a no-brainer for me. Yeah. That, that was – I understood that. What what about the Velvet Underground? Were they – like I, the Velvet Underground's New York is mm. like this sort of mythical, I guess, terrifying image that yeah. kind of gets painted in your memory as a music fan – did you ever interact with that side of it? Or were you too young? By the- Never. I, and I was, uh, you know, by the
2: time I hit college, I would immersed myself, of course, in Velvet Underground yeah, because, yeah. as an affectation, as a, uh, you know, the tortured, uh, you know, druggy, dark artist. Uh, you know, I loved the, I, I loved the music. Yeah, uh, I loved the records, but I was not. If I'm honest with myself, I didn't respond as emotionally to it as I did intellectually. I responded to the, to the Velvets as, as, you know, I definitely want to be associated with this group and this record,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, these records. Um, I think later as I myself got into heroin, which is, which I think do I blame the Velvets in a lot of ways and Lou Reed because they made it look like so much fun. All my, you know, all my, all my favorite writers and, and, and musicians at the time were doing dope, and nobody was more romantic about it and made you want to do it more than, uh, um, than, than uh, Lou Reed. Um, I, I, of course...
1: Yeah, Heroine's like a really irresponsible song, when you uh, think about it. I, it was, it was
2: um, Waiting for My Man. Oh, Waiting for My Man, yeah. A Sunday Morning... Uh, sweet Jane in particular, the slow version yeah. off the Texas, live in Texas album, the line that isn't on some of the other versions, like the loaded version, uh, heavenly wine and roses sing to me when you smile. I mean, I definitely understood, I, to me, I understood what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, in a visceral way, I reacted much more strongly to, uh, the heartbreakers, uh, and Johnny's uh, guitar playing. Uh, and to Richard Hell and the Voidoids, who were huge for me, and yeah. and the guitarist Robert Quine, still to this day, um, every time I hear uh, the guitar breaks on uh, "Love Comes in Spurts" mm-hmm. or "Blank Generation," I'm like, it's like the first time
1: I ever heard it. Yeah, what? the Ghost of Thunders haunts us. And Quine, a lot of dead yeah, people we're talking about here. Unfortunately, yeah, we're going uh, to yeah, mm-hmm. get into that. I'm sure. What was the first? Did you go to CB's? Was that the first place you saw the yeah. Ramones? Uh, I know you to CB's, the, I,
2: I, I, I'm, I saw the Ramones first at CBGB, uh, but many times after. Hurrah, yeah. I used to see them. I, I saw them. I had a tiny little room, uh, size of a one bedroom apartment, or size of a studio apartment, <laughs> it seemed, in In the middle of August, as I recall, or summer anyway, and all sweltering hot, <laughs> and they never took their jackets off. No. Uh, the cramps, who um, oh, I liked. There was that, that anger and unpredictability to. To Richard Hell, Heartbreakers, uh, The Cramps—you, you you felt the same. Nobody was, you know, it's worth remembering. Nobody was listening to that music. You couldn't hear it on the radio. Mm -hmm. You had to buy EPs and forty-fives at Bleecker Bob's if you wanted to. If you wanted to hear the actual music, none of these guys had contracts yet. Um, Maybe the Ramones at the time. But if you wanted to keep up, you bought these little independently pressed uh, forty-fives on labels you'd never heard of from Mm -hmm. England and elsewhere, and. And you got a sense that this is all gonna be gone soon. You know, it's a little blip and I'm there and it's special, but it's gonna be over soon.
1: Well yeah, like you talk about it being there and gone in a moment, and obviously the Ramones, Blondie you know, a lot of those bands had bigger careers out of the scene, but yeah, like bands like The Dots and a lot of these bands that put out like the one one and done type singles. Yeah. What were some of the bands that resonated with you that, you know, you don't think got that sort of second act? Were there any that you, or do you think like the cream rise to the top type thing? Um,
2: wow, that's really, good. who should have,
1: it's funny, they're
2: they're probably all available now to some, I mean, James White and the Black, the contortions, I (laughs) love the contortions, I saw them a lot, um, stimulators, um, the cramps have certainly endured, Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the heartbreakers should have been, you know, huge,
1: um, that was like a snake-bitten band, I guess, by that point. Like, yeah. people in that band had a lot of problems. Well, I mean, you know,
2: <laughs> they were. They, would they even show up, was <laughs> the question. I, you know, there's a famous story about Johnny didn't show up, and, and I think was, they were playing the Ritz, and they went looking for him in his car. I mean, he was sleeping in the back of his car. Yeah. You know, <laughs> to go knock on the window. Um you know, they all had, like, dope-fiend girl, stripper girlfriends who who would support them by, you know, hustling or stripping, and, uh, you know, everybody was seemed to be on dope. Uh, what other bands were really thrilling to me at the time? Oh, mm-hmm. man, it's going to come to me. Did you ever see The monks? <laughs> the monks that was Lance Loud's yeah, band, Lance right? band, Yeah, Lance Loud's band, I did see them. I don't remember them making a huge impression.
1: Yeah. Um, what about Breakfast Club? Did you ever see that Madonna's first band? No, uh, uh, there, were, there was another. There was one of her, her dances. Was in a
2: band called uh, Oh my god, that'll come. Don't worry. yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is her clear rap. defunct. I liked a lot. Oh yeah, uh, they were great. The songs about heroin. I always, you know, responded well <laughs> to that. Um, I love, you know, the New York New York sound. And then there was sort of an invasion when, uh, you know, the Bad Brains yeah. and um, uh, Black Flag sort of came to town, Dead Kennedys. Mm-hmm. Uh, things started to, you know, the sound started to change a lot.
1: Before we get to that point, do yeah. you remember actually, like, the first band you would have seen at, like, CB's? Like, when the first time you went? Because, like, it's always intriguing to me. Like, you were obviously someone who's been to the studios MC5. You were hip yeah. to this new music. Did it feel, like, could you hear rumblings about it before you saw it? Or did you go and see it and kind of than everyone else. I'd heard rumblings. It. I read uh, Soho Weekly News yeah. and
2: uh, The Voice, and I mean, I was up on up on music, mm. and I was. I think I went to see Richard Hell and the Voidoids first. Okay, and that just sounded like a band I was going to like. <laughs> <You
1: know? laughs> and, and and I did. Well, uh, in 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 you know books and articles, your books and, and articles. There's references to providing meals for junky punk mm. rock guitar heroes in exchange. I think we all know probably the main famous junkie guitar hero from punk rock is Johnny Thunders. I think. Yeah, I,
2: I, um, he came with, there was a photographer. I think she's still around, uh, Marsha Resnick, who somehow got her responded to the fact that we could provide free food <laughs> to her and her friends. And that we also, my kitchen had an appetite for heroin. Yeah. And, um, so she'd bring people by, um, cause we'd feed them for free. And mm-hmm. she brought Johnny Thunders by all dressed up.
1: Oh, just uh,
2: quiet and intimidated at dinner. Uh, drank, didn't, didn't know what to do, whether to order red or white wine when he was asked. So he, he asked for both and mixed them. I remember, <laughs> um, we got, uh, free tickets to his show at club 57 or Irving Plaza, I think for feeding him that night.
1: Wait, was it with the B girls? I have a poster for Johnny Thunder's playing at Irving Plaza on my wall.
2: There was an Easter show where oh, okay. he was he he the the the, the um, curtain went up and he was on a cross
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: with the guitar low slung, pointed down at five o'clock, totally stretched out on the cross in the Christ uh, position. Um, and I fed Richard Lloyd one night. Mick Farron, the jo- British journalist, and yeah. Richard Lloyd. And I don't know how that happened. Well, Mick Lloyd Fair- claimed that he was living with his neurologist at the time. I remember that it was not in the best of shape, and there was an incident after as we were walking to the subway uh, with some street people that uh, Richard got into. But um, you know, he—I I remember feeling flattered and
1: thrilled that I could feed these people. Yeah, and Mick Fair was in the Pink Fairies too, right? Yes, and the that's Deviants. Right. That's right. I think. That's right. So that's like. Punk rock gods from overseas, proto-punk gods. He was overseas. an old dude for the yeah, time. Yeah, oh, yeah Well, he movie, also put a record movie. on a stiff around then, too. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of the guys from Twink from the Pink Fairies put a record around then. Mm-hmm. I guess all those guys kind of got a second act once Punk hit England. Yeah. Um, one of the legendary stories about Johnny Thunders that circulated mainly through Vinny Stigma is that Johnny yeah. Thunders had an incredible meatball recipe mm-hmm. that he claimed was the best meatball recipe in the world. Did he ever share it with you? Because
2: no. it was an Italian restaurant at the time, right? Uh, no, it was i sort of, I don't know what we call ourselves, we international okay, or whatever. I, I, I wish I could say that we had long conversations. Yeah. We didn't. No. We didn't. Could he cook? It's hard to imagine because I don't know that he even had a kitchen for much of his life or career. I mean, he pretty much bounced around. There's this wonderful Sarinda Fox uh, anecdote in her uh, in her memoir about her long career in and out of rock and roll. Um if you don't know who Serena Fox was, she was, I guess, going out with, uh, David Johansson and left him for Steve Tyler yeah. with whom she had, uh, kids and married, I believe. And, um, so she knew all the rock and roll people. She'd been around. She was one of the, I guess, first early pressings of Groupie mm-hmm. Sable Star era, um, but she describes later in her life, uh, you know, post-group years, I think she left, uh, you know, the Steve Tyler thing was over, and door... She went with
1: Todd Rundgren afterwards, right? No, that was B.B. Oh, Buell. Yeah, sorry. Good Lord, I can't believe I know this shit. Yeah, you do. Popping um, <laughs> me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> doorbell rings, it's Johnny, and he's a fucking mess. He's just covered with sores. He's weighs around 87 pounds, ill, you know, uh, jonesing. And she describes the scene where she lifts him up. You know, he's so frail. He she lifts him up and bathes him. There's something very there's an almost uh, you know Madonna mm-hmm. Christ-like uh, religious imagery here of this frail uh, you know practically leprous Johnny Thunder is being you know bathed by this uh, by the by uh, surrender Fox that I always found uh, quite cinematic and it, sweet.
1: It's crazy to hear all these stories about how sick he was mm-hmm. and and. and but he lived for a long time with that sickness. Like he, he yeah. eventually moved. He died of the car. He got hit by a car, right? New Orleans was that? No, problem? he died of a methadone, a methadone overdose. overdose? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. No, I think yeah. it's debaters. Um, that's
2: it. Ill. Uh, look along. I mean, uh, you know, a hard work and unhappy life uh, yeah. for a for a guy. Him and Robert Quine both had just this great sound that's unmistakable and that uh, thrilling because you. Did he mean it? Mm-hmm. Did, did, did they mean to... Robert Quine, it sounded like... I think he had a Gibson SG. and It sounded like he was torturing a pig. You'd listen to... It, <laughs> it, it just it was just the thrilling noises. And, um, you know, Johnny Thunders, he just, uh, again, had that really special, unique sound that made everything just sound effortless and like he didn't give a fuck. When, of course, he clearly did very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote some beautiful songs.
1: Unbelievable songs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, were you a fan? Like did you like So Alone in that kind of era? I
2: thought So Alone was great. I think it's uh, it such a terrific, terrific, terrific album. It's think, probably his best work. Yeah, I think I'm gonna
1: to listen to that before I listen to New York Dolls if I'm being honest with myself, like you said earlier. Uh, yeah, more coherent, well thought through It's like a, a solid listen the whole way through. And yeah, you know, can't put your arms around a memory is like It's the a, best song. it's a classic. Be- it's one of the best just, songs. It's ever. just it's
2: just great. And um, you know get off the phone and yeah. uh i think he does subway training on yeah. that album right
1: uh, it's funny because uh you remember that band wah with a w-a-h with an exclamation point
2: uh uh-huh.
1: i know you're not a big no. fan of that era of british right. music yeah. but they actually cover you can't put your arms around a memory in like i have good taste <laughs> exactly so there's there's always accounting for some taste um, going you you touched on it with the the invasion of like D.C. with the bad brains and stuff. Do you, were you going to the A7 and, and all these sorts of after-hours type clubs? Uh, I'd go to a place called
2: the Nursery mm-hmm. that was after-hours, and it was a, a, a mob. It felt like a mob place. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, the guys who answered the door did not look like they belonged in a punk rock after-hours club. Yeah. They looked like they belonged elsewhere. Um you know, running a restaurant or a trash hauling business. <laughs> but the place is sort of cool because it was, uh, set up to look like a nursery, like a, like a pediatrician's office with paintings of like Iggy, a baby Iggy in a diaper, you know, smearing <laughs> peanut butter on his chest and like notif- noticeable or uh, notable, uh, people on the punk scene, at, but in, in nursery rhyme, uh, murals on the walls. Yeah. And you'd go in, you know, four or five in the morning, and Stiv, not Stiv, uh, Cheetah and Gita would be there and there, matching leopard skin spandex pants playing on a warped pool table, as I recall. Very, again, a very dopey yeah. scene.
1: Um, was that around right from the beginning? I guess New York has a huge history with heroin, but did that come into the punk scene, or was it there kind of right at the beginning? Do you find?
2: I think from the get go. Yeah. I, I just remember it being there from, the, from the beginning. It was the drug of choice from from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, coke was was you know what your parents did at Studio Fifty Four had bad associations. I mean, most of the people in the scene would be happy to scarf it up if you put it in front of them. But I think the drug of choice was was uh, smack for a lot of reasons. I think from the very beginning, uh, punk associated with the doomed. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, the first, arguably the first punks were Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine and, you know, the whole Verlaine Rambeau, you know, death trip, uh, Burroughs references, uh, uh, De Quincey and all of that. The literature was so rich and the, I think they just, uh, so, and the mm-hmm. velvets, of course, I, I, I think it was in its, in punk's DNA from the beginning
1: mm-hmm.
2: and, um, and was embraced by you know everybody. It had spread. Of course, you know many have made the case that Johnny Thunders is personally responsible for everybody in England getting all fucked up on dope because he they were so impressionable and so um, excited uh, to, to you know see what the Americans were up to. And it was a, it was big news when Johnny went over and him and I think I forget who else. I like think Richard Hoyt maybe. Yeah. It was our um, who else, but Billy Mercia, whoever. Who, he went. a
1: story about them at that party shooting up in front of everyone, yeah, or something.
2: And uh, it spread from there, so they say.
1: Did you ever, speaking of you know, famous people with heroin problems, unfortunately, mm-hmm. be on this topic? Did you ever see Peter Loeffner when he played with television, or when he came here? Not that cartoons? I've called. Okay. What, what was the first exposure you had to kind of that? hardcore stuff like Bad Braids were you seeing where were you seeing those bands I didn't see a lot
2: of them honestly I mean I I have a really as, as much as I love music and as much as I listen to music I have a very stunted uh, uh, playlist as I, I remember going to I think Danceteria and suddenly everybody's in like little pirate clothes and, and listening to Adam and the Ants and I just said oh fuck this is over and so I a lot of bands that I like now like I like Depeche Mode now but yeah. back then I was bitter I couldn't I couldn't listen to that synth English synth stuff yeah um, the you know Bad Brains and um, and even Dead Kennedys and Black Flag uh, I didn't respond to at the time so much mm-hmm. um, I was sort of off on my own I wasn't listening to a lot of, I wasn't spending a lot of money On records by that point Let's yeah, put it that way Fair enough My money was going elsewhere <laughs> In fact all of those records Everything You know All, the, all, all of that I sold I mean, Yes yeah. Literally sold on the street So I've been reconstituting A lot of it over the years
1: well, hopefully you didn't sell or have this one to sell because it would be very expensive to buy back now. But you mentioned the stimulators. Did yes. you, did you see the Madden the stimulators in those bands?
2: Or? Um, I saw the stimulators, a place called Paradise Garage, and it was one of those, you know, back then. I mean, what was great about the times is that you could literally see you know, all of these bands on one night. Yeah. You know, and I'd rather be the you know the mumps, the dots, the cramps, the spots, the circle jerk, whatever. Yeah. Uh and then uh this was Paradise Grubs. It was like the contortions, um oh god, I forgot who else. oh, um the cramps and I believe and the stimulators. What and the film. stimulators cool. had this like twelve year old drummer. Yeah. Which was something it was people were talking about. Did he say the drummer and the, the is, he's fucking 12 he was 12 Well <laughs> Harley Flanagan yeah. who you'd see around uh, you'd go to Max's Kansas City and he'd be sitting there at a table with you know surrounded by like 17 year old girls he walked like just like through, through walls and then of course uh, created the Crow Mags a yeah. hugely important band and uh, he's now my daughter's uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor, <laughs> Professor Harley, and, uh, and a friend. And I met him through jiu-jitsu. He's an awesome guy with uh, some new music coming out, and we hope to be using some of it on our uh, on an upcoming show. Wow, that would be awesome! Uh, and the- he's got a book also. He's working on a memoir. Wow. And, man, and he's got a lot to a lot to talk about. He's an incredible. Life, yeah. A big gap between those two books that yeah. he put out. Yeah. He, he published a book where Alan Ginsberg wrote the forward of his first book which he wrote at age seven. seven. There's pictures of him at like age 10 or 11 maybe in his little, little suit sitting with Joe Strummer backstage. It was extraordinary
1: life. Well, they toured uh, Ireland. They toured yeah. Northern Ireland as like a DIY punk band from New York in like eighty, what 79, 80? Yeah, it's crazy to think about that.
2: Well, uh, Harley's mom, who just passed recently, was an extraordinary character, as was his aunt, uh, who was, I think, in the stimulators with him. And um, his
1: mom was a fa- was part of the factory, was it? I Harley believe mom? so. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, and that 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 whole time, uh, the, the we sort of, I guess, uh, James White, who was on the the. The same uh, Bill as uh, as Harley and the Stimulators. Those are the beginning of No Wave. Yeah. And, in fact, uh, I think it was Pat Place who played guitar, I believe. No, no bass, I'm, I'm not sure. For um, for James White, ended up uh, with their band, the Bush Tetris. Who yeah. If you go back and listen to the Bush Tetris band, that holds up still. That that was a great band.
1: So much of that 999 records of Bush Tetris, yep. Liquid, Liquid, ESG, like that is like right. the foundation of a lot of popular music now. It and,
2: seems uh, Brian Eno produced that album, I believe. No, New York no, no the, New York, no New York, no New York. Yes. But I don't think that
1: was on Nine Nine Nine. It was no. on a different label, right? But yeah, what was that? Were you so you were going all that no wave stuff? Like yeah, because it just I, I, guess I didn't it crossed over. It, yeah. I, I just I sort
2: of didn't notice that things were changing. I was just it was like in some of these bands mm-hmm. uh, again that, that, that music fit my mood. Yeah, um, you know well. Um, it's funny though if you look at who is producing a lot of those albums, like Brian Eno and uh, and John Cale, mm-hmm. uh, and they produced a lot of really between them a lot of really interesting albums. I, I often confuse their work because they were so ubiquitous yeah. in producing big big records that I responded to. I mean, John Cale did uh, the Modern Lovers first Modern Lovers album. Yeah, um, Devo. I'm not sure was it Eno or Cale. <laughs> sure it's first Eno, right? It. It's Eno. I
1: don't know. I think or maybe one of them is Cale. But, like, but yeah, we, we, but that, but also those two guys, two people that, you know, like for people that were so at the top of their game in their respective genres at the time, like, you know, their, their two bands are legendary bands to start off with, but their tastes are so diverse. The stuff they produce is all over the map. I was watching to Mars. I was
2: watching, um, I think it was a film, the, the, the TV show, The Bridge. Okay yeah and I'm, I'm watching and then you pull up at a gas station and there's this character played by John Cale so, what, what's John Cale doing it's
1: awesome uh, there, uh, one time this guy Colin Brunton who this filmmaker from Toronto producer w- was on the podcast and he was telling this story where John Cale came to perform and they were all like do not bring up the Velvets. like just right. no one yeah. do it And then uh, so <laughs> so one guy's like just so excited and gets drunk and just turns to him like so the belt going to get back together? Oh, yeah. And he's like, grabs yeah. him by the lapels, he's like, I like your suit. Yeah, but it's like, you know, people say
2: that, you know, if you ever meet Francis Coppola, you know, when you meet, if you're doing an event with Francis Coppola, people come and say, don't mention the Godfather. <laughs> don't mention the Godfather. It's like,
0: really? Oh, you
2: know, I can't yeah. even say it. You know, no. you have to. He doesn't want to hear it. Doesn't. Okay, period. You're getting
1: pissed. But, um. So you just yeah. bring up The Aviator. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie. That's where you really found your voice. Um, where did you see Sonic Youth back then? Because they were an early kind of Uh no, age. I no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see him.
2: Um, You know, a big gaping hole in my. Uh, of course, yeah, I, I really check. I checked out for a lot of years. There was just a lot of stuff in the '90s that I responded to. I mean, there were certain acts I would, I would always see Elvis Costello up until the point that I reached the age where it's creepy to go to concerts. You know, like <laughs> yeah, what age is that? Because now I'm worried. I don't know, but there's a point. There's a point. I went to an Elvis uh, show. And I looked around at the audience and said, Oh my God, look at all these hideous old fucks. And it's like, Oh shit, that's me. <laughs> but the alternative is is they have a younger audience and you show up and you're a little creepy uncle in this room full of kids. I, I just, I, so I don't go, I really don't, I don't see a lot of
1: live music anymore. I yeah. That one. Well, I guess you get to a point, too, where, you know, once you've seen The Stooges, is a band trying to be The Stooges yeah. going to be The Stooges? Yeah. I mean, wow. Well, uh, and I only saw The Stooges. Four years ago, and it's ruined music. For, or ten years ago now, and it's ruined music for me ever since. You know, there's there's some are some just timeless, timeless,
2: timeless music. And, you know, you you listen a hundred years from now, you listen a penetration yeah. off uh, off uh, raw power that will be just as strong, that's just actually, as dangerous, just as that, that is a sinister, sinister hook.
1: That's actually something I really wanted to talk to you about because I read a, a long time ago when when you did something with Iggy Pop and mm. he was on the show. And you wrote a thing about Iggy and the Stooges. Right. and In that, you talked a lot about getting to the first record, and you talked about how much fun has meant to you, but you also are one of the few people that I find that was into that early stuff that also carried over Raw Power. Right. A lot of people seem to, like, disown. I on. was unhappy
2: initially with the production on Raw Power. It wasn't enough bass for me. Mm-hmm. It was a little, uh, little cluttered. It didn't have that dark, rich, thump-thump uh, bass. Um I mean, you know, Raw Power, you really wanted to kill somebody or yourself afterwards. I mean it was just so <laughs> whereas um Raw Power was noisier and tinnier to my ear at the time. Other than penetration. Yeah. And Gimme Danger. Gimme Danger. Also. But um yeah, I, I wasn't so happy with the mix. Fortunately you can now buy the DVD, the uh The CD with like you know twenty nine different versions of every song of the album. Yeah, Iggy did it, and it improves over time. Yeah, it's it's a great album filled with great songs and um, and a couple of perfect ones.
1: Well, now that we're going on this path of either or, I've read you talk about the Clash a lot, Mm -hmm. and I've also read you put down the Sex Pistols. Yeah, which to me. Is insane because I'm a Sex Pistols fan over a Clash fan, and there is. Are you? Do you like? Look, the Sex Pistols were kind of the punk
2: monkeys in the sense that they were an industry band. If you look at uh, um, uh, Malcolm McLaren as the industry, I mean, a startup for sure. Yeah, I mean, they they pretty much. I mean, they recruited Sid for his looks. You know, Mm -hmm. they 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 were a glorious accident that put out a great one great record. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a terrific record. You you can't take away from it. I guess I I got into a vicious argument at a bar with the Jeremy Clarkson of Top Gear a few years ago who insisted that punk was created by the British, uh, by the Sex Pistols in particular. I said, no, no, no. uh, I'm sorry that they would never have existed, not their look, not anything else without New York punk. So I'm a little, I I got an axe to grind here. That was a great, look, Bodies is a great, great, great song. Oh, incredible song. And you know that—that's what rock and roll should be. I think the Clash are awesome. I saw them at Bonds like ten nights in a row, something like that.
1: Um, they were—they were a great but, band. But Bernie Rhodes but, kind of served the same purpose for them as Malcolm McLeod. Obviously, not as much putting it together. Will they? Will the Clash hold up? Yeah, you know, with the same
2: outsized reputation uh, that they had, let's say ten years ago. I don't know. Yeah, I mean the. The Sex Pistols will because they were the right album at the right time that everybody needed to hear. And, and John Lydon, uh, I mean, great front man. Yeah. Great, great stuff. But, um. You know, my loyalties are in New York. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an East Coast, West Coast thing. I'm a bitter. What can I say?
1: Well, I because I'm also going to say, I disagree with both of you, and I say it starts in Toronto, Ontario. No, I'm just kidding. Cleveland, <laughs> Ohio, because you have Rocks from the Tombs, mm-hmm. uh, Electric Eels, and a band that would eventually move to New York and become one of my favorite New York punk bands, the Dead Boys, Frankenstein. Well,
2: Sonic Reducer is, you're talking about great rock and roll songs, great punk songs. That is the oh. the iconic it's got everything it's It's got the perfect sound it's perfect lyrics it's about longing and rage and envy and and a desire for revenge it's absolutely what rock and roll should be about in a perfect world (laughs) and done by the band who should you know no one else should do it except Pearl Jam did a very good I thought Pearl Jam did a really good uh, version and I
1: have enormous respect or the fact that they recognized how great a song it is. Yeah, I would say like, and also Pearl Jam, all punk former punk rockers. They all uh, were in different punk bands, and like a uh, great band.
2: Yeah, yeah, C- great band. That's a band that will hold up, uh, you know, unto forever. You know,
1: but with with Sonic Reducer, I kind of think that's a song that's good enough that you could give it to your most despised band, and it would still, as long as they didn't fuck with it, yeah, it would still come out great. Like because it's it's you can't, yeah. you know. I'd love to. Um, I always wanted to hear like Steely.
2: I'd like to remaster all of Steely Dam, different different musicians. Yeah, because their lyrics are all so dark and about terrible things like murder and drug running and and you know pedophilia and all all this nasty, ugly, dark shit. They're beautiful lyrics, but the worst but that music. Easy listening. Aww. It's just it defines easy listening. Thank you. You know. Thank you. We live in an era now where it's like okay to be. Like I'm like but they're great know. songs. Yeah, they're... It's great songwriting. But it's just like it's a... great lyrics, it's just the arrangements and the score. It's, oh, just, it's so boring. So a punk versions would be fantastic.
1: I think you got something there. <laughs> it's like a new project. I think you found a soundtrack for the next season. It's dark. Stealing hand covers. Sound. Um you know, talking about getting back to music, you I've read you talk about Brian Jones' Jonestown mm-hmm. Massacre. What was the point where you kind of felt like obviously dealing with the, the illness and, and recovery mm. and things mm. like that coming out of that. What were some of the bands that kind of got you back into music? Because You're now known as one of the most, and I'm reading stuff you write, you're into cool stuff. Um, I saw the documentary. I
2: watched a lot of rock docs. Yeah. I love them. The Ginger Baker one, amazing. Yeah. Uh, but Dig was, I, I was a channel surfing, I think, and I, I arrived about it. I've seen it many times since, but I arrived at around halfway through. And I'm watching, sort of mesmerized by the, by the train wreck of it all. And then they play that song, Anemone. Yeah. And I just said, holy shit. This is, this is great. This is really, this is genius. This is great. Again, I would just perfectly fit my, um, my metabolism and Mm -hmm. my worldview. And the sound was just so lush and beautiful and dark. And, and, uh, so that I, I responded to very powerfully. Um, uh, Josh Homme sort of got me back in a, in a music in a big way. And I bumped into, they reached out, we were, we were shooting a show in Berlin and the Queens of the Stone Age were playing somewhere and they reached out and said, you know, Anthony would like to come by and see the show. So I saw them and I said, wow, that's great. And we became friends and he turned me on to Mark Lanigan mm-hmm. and screaming trees way after the fact. And, um. I like his stuff post Street more. I Holy think. shit! The bubblegum, uh, bubblegum wow. album, uh, "Wedding Dress." Man, that is uh, that's just yeah. uh, incredible, incredible, and really one of the great joys in my life is that those two guys did uh, you know our theme music <laughs> uh, wrote and and uh, and uh, performed and uh, huge. Man, you know, I guess it should come as I, I'm pretty predictable. I think you know it should come as no surprise to anyone that of course I would like Mark
1: Rack. <laughs> i <there listening> up. <laughs> so, are, like, how do you find new music? Because like Das Racist, there's like I think the diversity of the stuff that mm-hmm. you've kind of like put on, and also the stuff that you put on, like you know, my band included bands in other countries. Uh-huh. You're not reaching out to the labels, being like, "Who are you pushing right now?" Right. Where does that come from?
2: Um... What's great? What's great and local? You know yeah. who's. There are certain writers who 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 own territory. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, George V. Higgins owned uh, Boston for a long time. Meaning, if you're writing a crime novel in Boston, you may as well give up. Yeah. If George V. Higgins is still alive. Yeah. And I think I'm I, often to s- scoring the shows has always been really really important. We always want a unique sound specific to. Uh, to that area that is different than any other shows or any other area. So we're always kind of looking for, you know, I make an effort. Who's, who's got,
1: who owns Toronto, you know? <laughs> well, that feels really good now to hear. Now everyone in Toronto will hate me. <laughs> I got to say, though, that has served, being on that show with you has served me so well my wife and I will go to a restaurant oh, I'll be excellent. Like, I recognize you from the show and they'll give us free appetizer or something so good, thank you good, for good, that it's good, served good me good very here. well now everyone in Toronto though will hate me because you put me on and Toronto hates
2: I'm a, tall look, poppies I'm obviously I'm a music fan and um you know great joy has been you know have have an Iggy on the show yeah. is like pretty much the you know the greatest thing that ever happened um I like collaborating. I, I, music is important to film and it's important to the, to the show. And um, it just really, you know, the guy who, who uh, actually, the, the music for the show is just produced and scored and put together uh, by a guy named Mike Rafino who comes from a legendary uh, f- a power pop band called The Unband from Boston. What? Really? Yes. Mike is a good friend. No way. Uh, I'm publishing his memoir called Adios Motherfuckers, which is about their horrifying career as a bunch of knuckleheads from uh, from suburban uh, Massachusetts who form a power pop trio um, and want to go out and play, but they end up as sort of opening for all these Hair metal uh, t- bands like Dio and Dokken and uh, um, Motorhead and uh, all of these, you know, hair giant, you know, uh, sort of metal and, uh, and and hair metal bands. Yeah. And uh, it's a very funny book. Uh, there's a film called uh, "We Like to Drink, We Like to Rock and Roll" about their ill-starred uh, career. Um, but he's the musical director for the show, and he puts together uh, either if we can't afford a particular artist, he'll make music that sounds kind of like it, um, or he'll reach out to the artists themselves and see if they're willing to you know give us music for free. Um, so or find local bands. You know, if we're looking for a Burmese punk band, or uh, you know somebody who's doing thrash metal in Tokyo, that's generally uh, Mike. And often he'll come and, and work with the musicians on location. Uh, you know, so so we really pay a lot of attention to who's making who's making interesting sounds and I think it they know what I like, what film scores I like, and what music I respond to. So, you know, they're not looking for the, you know, a folky. Yeah. You know, that's I'm not a big folk fan. You mentioned yeah.
1: a Burmese punk band. If they sound just like, you know, Natalie Merchant, <laughs> they're probably, you know, not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna hear about it. No, I'm not gonna make it for the cut. Yeah. You talk about the Burmese punk band, where has there been anywhere you've been and seen music and you've been like I had no idea that this type of music would be existing here. I, Burmese punk band. I gotta, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. Hip hop
2: first. There's hip hop everywhere. And it's incredibly powerful uh, in Cuba, in the Middle East, in Beirut, in uh, uh, all over Africa, uh, either blending with local styles or not. Mm-hmm. And it's an expression of discontent. Uh, it's a really powerful one. But man, it takes a real dedication to be a punk rocker in a military, uh, you know, with a military junto where free speech, you know, puts you in jail. Um, Or, you know, in in Japan where, you know, that sort of rebellious behavior uh, uh, is not, not, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's all the more extraordinary and, you know, I like to reward that whenever possible, shine a light on someone, you know, just crazy enough and... And uh, and weird enough to want to wanna be, you know, uh, to be making punk rock in uh, Mexico City or, or uh, Myanmar or uh,
1: Vietnam. And there, there's going to be someone. I heard about a black metal, satanic black metal band in the tribal regions of Pakistan. No doubt about it. That, to me, would be the most extreme I think you could pick up. To no me. doubt about <laughs> it. I know in
2: Afghanistan, it was a, there was a young warlord in the north who... Who I guess had grown up in uh, rural Pennsylvania and had all those black yeah. metal records. Yeah yeah, 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 And he actually was high up, right? Everybody gets that, you know. Like uh, you, you, you check out in Congo the militias there. I mean, they're all super tuned in. You know, TV and mm-hmm. and music and uh, the web. I mean, people they 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 respond. Certain emotions require certain types of music. I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Have, have you noticed? Like, I guess I got to talk about a little bit about the food thing because mm. uh, people want to hear you talk about the food thing. <laughs> um, but I could talk to you about music forever, so mm. we could just go on like this. But I wanted to ask you in in all the the travels that you've done with all these, you know, seeing all this food and stuff. Where do you go when you're driving somewhere and you got to stop on the highway right. and eat? Because that's the one thing that I think right. we. You travel so much, and that's I relate to as a band. And I know you do not like McNuggets. That's very famously quoted. Where do like you know? Look, I I mean, I found myself
2: uh, in I think it was Laredo, Texas. You know, at nine thirty at night, and there was nothing. Yeah, it was like, oh man, you know, Applebee's is closed. What do we do now? Um, Look, Waffle House. Is awesome. Yeah. Because they, as I, I, I was just introduced to Waffle House. Actually, it's it's really it's an amazing place. No matter how drunk you are at two <laughs> o'clock in the morning, they're nice to you. Yep. And their foods, you know, pretty decent. I'm a Popeyes fried chicken guy. I like their 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 macaroni and cheese and their and their biscuits and chicken. I I, I don't mind that at all. Uh, in fact, I
1: like it. Um. I find a lot of chefs. Popeyes is their my friend Matty Matheson. Yep. That's his. He has. He has a speed dial on his phone, and like it seems like that's the chef's fried chicken of choice for fast food. So that that would be, you know, that would be ideal.
2: Yeah. Um. You know, any sinister looking taco stand or taco truck would be, you know, preferable to a fast food outlet. But if yeah, if there's a Popeyes or a or a Waffle House, problem solved. As far (laughs) as I'm concerned.
1: (laughs) Have you ever gotten sick from a fast food place? Um.
2: What's a joke about? You know. uh, uh, about Taco Bell, you know, it's like their their motto used to be, you know, take a run for the border. You know, it's
1: like you better run fast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I don't think we're gonna have the uh, Anthony Bourdain Taco Bell Signature Series coming. Uh, out I don't think today. so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I guess, like, I could go on talking about more music, but I also just wanted to. Yep, I'm happy you did. I got time. I'm happy to talk about music all you want. Okay, well, let's go back to the music <laughs> stuff because uh, I think. Uh, what, did Was there a point where you, you know, you mentioned getting, obviously, the drugs became a big thing mm. that you consciously got out of punk? You talked about the Adam Ants thing. Was there a point where you were like, this isn't my scene anymore.
2: I think everything slows down when you're on heroin. Everything sort of slows down and becomes sort of stuck in time. Your digestive system slows down. You know, you yeah. don't, you 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 stop the uh, you know you, you shit once every three weeks. Okay, uh, you don't live an active lifestyle. Let's put it that way. You pretty much know one of the great things about heroin is you. You know, you don't have to wonder about what you're going to do tomorrow. You know what you're going to do tomorrow. You need to get heroin. Mm -hmm. Um, Your things to do list is pretty short. Um, I just stopped listening. I stopped buying records and started selling records. I stopped listening to music much. Uh, I listened to the same stuff. I mean, I couldn't be bothered. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, um, so I just sort of... uh, Dropped out of uh, you know I didn't go out to shows I required a disposable income and a, and more initiative than I had all my time was either working to make money uh, or or searching for dope and then you know the rehab time in you know, a methadone again you're sort of you know trapped in an uh, aspect uh, you know so for ten years I was just pretty much frozen there mm-hmm. you know nothing nothing really. You know, don't remember much. You know, I didn't grow as a person, learn any new skills, or, or do any work. I mean, that's, you know, uh, if people ask, how you know, how do we get off dope? You know, well, I don't know. But ask yourself, do I have things left to do in my life? Are there things that I'd like to do that I haven't done? You know, really, are there things I want to do still? And if the answer is yes, then, you know, get off dope. Um... You know, if the answer is no,
1: then, you know, maybe not, you know? <laughs> does it does it shock you that it keeps coming back? Like, I think, you know, I, it's no. it, it's on an upswing now. Heroin? It's, no. it's
2: always, it's... it's. Uh,
1: but I mean in music. Like, that, it, like there's not enough cautionary tales that people in bands still a, turning to people it. People
2: will be drawn to it all, again and again because their heroes did it. Yeah. Okay? That's going to have... I may not write beautiful songs, but I could do heroin like people who did write beautiful songs. Yeah. You know, uh, somehow I will, I will, I will gain the magic, or, or maybe at least the experience. Maybe when I fucked up my life enough, I'll be able to write, you know, a song like Heroin or uh, Sweet Jane. Um, I, I think that's, you know, that's a common mistake. You know, if I if I do the same substances as my favorite writers, I will somehow, you know, gain their mojo. Um, and then it feels good. That's why people do it yeah. because it feels good until it doesn't. It you know, and uh, if I went back uh, to when I first did it now and told my then, you know, 20-ish self, you know, what was going to happen, I don't think I would have listened to myself. I would have said, fuck off, I don't care. Yeah. Um, I just think it's, there will always be, uh, it will always cycle in, you know, it goes out for a while, then cocaine comes back in or some other stimulant, and then when people get too jangly and with that, that you know, heroin comes back. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, it's an end to um, uh, to neuro to neurosis and worry and rage and fear and discomfort and all of those things until it isn't, of course. And then it's the cause of them, I guess. And then yeah, then it's you know, but everyone knows how bad it is. It's
1: yeah, bad. it's really bad. It's crazy because we we had two people that did sound for us: one mm-hmm. in New York, one in Toronto, passed away from. From opiates, you know, and it's yeah. it, it's just it, I don't know, and obviously something I've been able to not come in contact yeah. with and and avoid, but it's just it's amazing how many it, lost generations there are.
2: It's not the dying thing, okay? Yeah. That's I mean that's terrible. Yeah, to, that it, it takes people away from us. Worse, it turns them into whiny, needy, weak, utterly dependent. Completely dishonest people who will disappoint and break the hearts of everyone they come in contact with. That's what junkies do. Mm-hmm. They steal, they disappoint you, they betray you, uh, and they whine and wheedle and make excuses and do all of those things that junkies do. <coughs> and those are all the things I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was vanity that saved me. I just look I look in the mirror and I said, oh jeez, it's fucking sickening. You know, the whiny, pathetic excuse-making sack of shit, you know, who, you know, every day I go out there scoring. When you're a junkie too, you're the you're the slow mover. Mm-hmm. You know, you're the you know, you're the 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 grass eater, you know, the meat eaters were the crackheads, you know, who would feed off of these slow-moving dope fiends. So we'd be out there trying to score a dope and the crackheads who had a rather more urgent and pressing uh, uh, need to, f- to feed their habits, uh, man, they'd, they'd fuck us up, you know. That, and, and, you know, when you're robbed and ripped off and, enough, uh, you know, it, uh, in my case, I just, and, and then, you know, later in the methadone clinic, I just hated being dependent on everything and everybody other than, you know, myself.
1: Um, I guess moving on to much more positive, mm-hmm. life-focusing things, jujitsu has become mm-hmm. like a big part of your life. Yeah, who saw that coming? Yeah, like what, I, I guess love was what brought you to it? Or like what brought, like. No, um,
2: look, it's the last thing in the world I ever thought I would, would find myself doing. I've managed to avoid going to a gym my whole life. I, I hate people like working out all the time, you know, bicycling or. Jogging. I mean, I I always had utter contempt for that. I, I didn't want to be that sort of person, um, and I was lazy in any case, and a chain smoker, and overweight, and life was going okay. Yeah. So what the fuck? What do I need to go to gym for? But my wife got really into mixed martial arts and jujitsu, and as part of a humor for a humorous article for Vice magazine, uh, she bribed me uh, to go in and a few friends. The most unlikely people she could think of to do one, one training session. And I did it and I survived it. And I was thinking about it for the rest of the day and then for a few days after. I said, you know what? I'm going to do that again. And then I got hooked. I don't know. I don't, I still don't know. It's an intellectual thing. I mean, it's an intellectual exercise. It's a, it's a, you create problems when you go in and do jiu-jitsu for yourself whether you have a good day or a bad day you create problems and you spend the rest of the day thinking about how you're going to solve them or at least suck less at <laughs> it the next day Yeah, and it's uh I do it wherever I go everywhere in the world I don't know whether it, Borneo Beirut so you always try to find a gym to roll I, I now plan shoots off off time there's some places yeah. where this is going to be nuts. there's just not Ethiopia yeah. <laughs> rural Ethiopia I'm not going to find it to yeah but I know there's one in Budapest, and I know there's one in Kuching in Borneo or Okinawa, and I'm going to make those arrangements beforehand mm-hmm. uh, so that I can wake up in the morning and go, you know, with some 22-year-old who's going to be trying to choke me out uh, every day. Is that
1: ever a fear for the producers on the show? Like,
2: <laughs> um, once you come in with a black eye It's day? funny. There's, um, I've spoken to a couple – I'm not going to mention today's – a couple other people who are on TV – who actually talk about how they tell their rolling partners to like not you know stay what? away from the face yeah or how they do judicious because there's no striking just an, an elbow super panic you know don't, don't don't mess up my face you know what i always feel sort of you know i don't fuck it. i don't care <laughs> what what I, I don't even shave from see, I'm, I'm in a luxurious position i don't yeah. even shave i don't even pop zits for my <laughs> show you know You can pretty much tell my mood by how fucked up I look on camera. (laughs) So, no, I just, I don't care. Um, It's not a a concern. I'm sure it makes people nervous. Uh, I I would prefer to not lose any teeth, Yeah, uh, front teeth. That would probably be bad. But if I show up with a black eye or a busted nose or something, so what? Deal with it.
1: Um, well, I could talk to you forever, go on about a million bands, and one day hopefully we can do this again. But I want to let you get on with your day before you choke me out or we, uh, <laughs> we go any further. But I just want to talk to you because, like, you read that I wrote. You wrote an article mm-hmm. called about 1977 and how it was kind of a shit year. Yeah, and, and like great, great music came out of it, but the life that brought that great music was kind of shitty in the city. Really? So much is made about old New York and the romanticism around old New York. What are your takes on it? Like having read that article, '77 being, I guess, my idea Mm. of old New York.
2: Um,
1: Look, it was an exciting
2: time for music, Um, but like a lot of exciting times for music, I don't know that we were were fully aware of it at the time. I mean, we knew there were, you know, me and my friends. There were there were a lot of bands to see. But I think we were always very aware that it was a small thing. We didn't expect it to expand. Um, you know, what you saw on television, what you uh, heard on the radio, in no way reflected your life. Mm-hmm. This was something I was used to. Um, it was There wasn't a sense of community. I think that's, that's very different from like the English scene, the British scene, you know, you see, you know, people all dressed alike with the same, well, you know, with their improvisations on, you know, the uh, the Mohawks and heavily styled hair and the ripped clothes. It was more of a do-it-yourself sort of show-up uh, scene. It wasn't a. It wasn't a scene. It wasn't sure as shit. wasn't a movement. Um, there wasn't, I, I don't recall any sense of community or any of those mm-hmm. things. There were just a lot of really interesting bands in New York for a while. Uh, the quality of life in New York was not particularly good. It was dark times. You know, Garbage Strikes and Summer of Sam. And, and um, you know, everybody was on dope and nobody was making money. And uh, it was not a hopeful, particularly hopeful time. So it wasn't like we're changing the world or even we're... We're at the beginning of something important that might change the world or improve our lives. I don't think anybody believed that, and the, the, the drug of choice at the time was did not was not conducive to that kind of mushy thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just I don't remember having a plan or any hopes or dreams or anything. I I knew that there was music that was uh, exciting uh, to me and that I responded to, uh, but I think part of the the appeal and what I connected to was that. The certain sense that this will be gone tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know. Um, CBGB was not a nice bar. It smelled bad. It was dirty. I don't remember being very. Rom- I, I wasn't. I, I, I'm not romantic about it at all. I heard you know?
1: there was dog shit on the floor because <laughs> I, I.
2: I just. I, I human assumed human. it was human shit. I <laughs> just, just. I mean, you'd be ankle <laughs> deep in in the bathrooms. It would with. I mean, it was fucking hideous. Yeah. There was nothing cool about it it was a venue yeah. and not even the better venue I mean I would much rather have seen I enjoyed seeing uh, going to Hurrah I thought the uh, it was a better place to see the bands that I liked uh, later the Ritz was you know that was a real theater mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know it wasn't a, it wasn't a magic uh, time we just coming out of disco um, the clothes were awful um, the city was, you know, dirty. There was a lot of crime, you know, and it's, you know, I look back on Times Square of the time and I say, oh, look, it's like Disneyland now. It's all fucked up and family friendly and Bubba Gump and Madame Tustos. But, you know, is, you know, with child prostitution and crack and, uh, you know, abscess covered, you know, uh, diabetic hookers, is, is that Was that so great? You know, not really. (laughs) It wasn't, you know. And, you know, the weed, okay, you could buy a loose joint in the street, but it was bad weed. Terrible weed, probably. Uh, I missed the grind (laughs) houses. But, you know, I was young, and I don't want to be young again. I I mean, if I could go back and relive
1: it all, I I wouldn't. I, I, I once was enough. Okay. <laughs> the last band I want to ask you about before we go just because it's a band that no one really talks about ever did you ever see the Steel Tips Joe Coleman's band I, I didn't you never saw them no Tony Anthony thank you so much for being on this thing it means a yeah. lot buddy thank you you know it's going to drive me crazy because for the rest of the day I'm going to be
2: thinking about oh
1: we should have talked about this band oh, God, I know So awesome. well, that's why we do part twos yeah
2: Everything. all Yardbirds we should do an hour just, just on the Yardbirds. Yardbirds so how important How great, How great? what a great band that was the first super group when yeah, you think about it. But, they, but they didn't even, they didn't know they were a no. at the
1: time. They no. were just
2: like, you know. Cool. A bunch of people.
1: Yeah. But it's so also when you think about like, because it wasn't even like they were all in the band at the same time. It's like consistent kind of turnover of legends. Yeah. You know, when someone would be replaced, it would be a future legend. And, and, you know, you
2: look back um, at, at, at some of these bands, you just can't believe that they ever existed or were permitted to exist in that era.
1: Well, I think about, mm-hmm. I, you think about you know, New York punk and like how many people came out of that scene? Like yourself, obviously, right. but like, you know, how many musicians, Madonna, like, you know, Joe Coleman, a great visual artist. Like there's so many people that were attracted to this energy and you said to yourself "It's a very small scene at that time that all kind of went out to have this massive impact. Jim Jarmusch like yeah. was there. Like all these people were there kind of Intermixing. You, you,
2: there are some films floating around that you go back and look at now, like a Desperately Seeking Susan. Yeah. Um, Liquid Sky. Um, uh, I think it was Desperately Seeking Susan, were a lot of punk rockers in in, in there uh, of the time. There's one out now, a Downtown '81.
1: Uh, the like, wow. Uh,
2: there's a doc called Gringo uh, that's uh, terrific. I was like, wow, uh, you really. It, it was so different, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I, I look back on, uh, you know, it, it, you know, some of the bands that came before that were. I mean, how the hell did the MC Five happen? Yeah. Or Rocky Erickson and Thirty Four Elevators, yeah. or, uh, or or Stooges, or Blue Cheer. Um, extra, it, it's an extraordinary it, it, extraordinary thing that
1: they survived, that they had record contracts at mm-hmm. all, that that they got listened to. Um, well, I think Danny Fields. Like, Danny Fields is, like, one of these people that when the history of music is written... about Central. Central. Yeah. Like, it's, like, the amount of places that guy was to kind of kickstart what was now, I guess, alternative music or right. mainstream music at this point, it's Danny Fields is, like like, if he didn't go to Detroit and be, like... Yo, in addition to the MC5, we should also sign this other band, The Stooges.
2: Right. Well, it's worth. I remember I, my dad was at Columbia
1: when uh, they signed The Stooges. Oh, yeah. Electric in Columbia. Um,
2: what was it? And it was um, the same guys, I think, signed them as signed um, uh, Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah. And The Dictators, I believe. Um, Why but we didn't you th- talk about The Dictators. There was a, a, a Sandy Perlman and Murray Krugman, I think, were the names. And the talk around the office was, oh, yeah the boys were called were awesome they were so loud two people there were two ODs and 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 people had to leave because it was too loud like that was good yeah um and I think the Stooges were signed initially because they were just really loud and really messy with a really bad reputation and that was that was sort of band you for a brief moment in history you wanted I mean yeah there was a perverse sense of we're gonna do the worst possible thing um and it didn't work out for Columbia, of
1: course. Uh, no. at the time. No, but, but you know, also you hear about those where uh, when Iggy's when the Stooges are out in L.A. and after they've been dropped by the label and just like they're playing two shows a day. I think it's a whiskey they were doing yeah. two shows a day, and he's like killing himself, like cutting himself, knocking himself out. Where's the album came out of
2: that time. I mean, there was st- there's oh. so many stories about it. Or Kill City. Yeah, Kill City. Uh, yeah. There's so many great stories of that of that time of like people finding Iggy and like literally <laughs> in the gutter wearing a dress,
1: you know, outside the you know the one of the one of the Sunset Strip uh, places. Keith Morris from the Circle Jerks told me he was at one of the shows and Iggy gets covered in water and grabs the mic and gets sacked mm. and just falls down on the stage. So the set finishes, the roadies clear all the gear, and then last thing they do is. Take a big, But
2: isn't it one of the like? Isn't it a sort of a great and encouraging thing to realize Iggy Pop is still alive? I know he's making decent money. I presume he's uh, he's 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 healthy. He's uh, a gentle, thoughtful, uh, reasonably happy guy. Best I could tell. Um, very thoughtful. Very yeah. articulate. Um, you know, living in Florida, uh, that's, you know, that Keith Richards is, you know, uh, proud of his library and i something of a military historian. hate hey, rap
1: music though.
2: Uh, <laughs> we can't all be perfect. No, <laughs> uh, I, I find that good. You know, I, I look at those guys and I think, you know what, the, the good guys can win. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, that, that, that makes me happy.
1: Iggy uh, doesn't eat all day And then he plays his shows And he'll eat after they will keep a restaurant open for him Yeah uh, You know obviously You cook for Johnny Thunders Is there anyone That you musically Like Iggy or someone like that That you wish Like I would love to have a chance To cook for that guy Obviously not being a
2: I would like to um, I would like to cook With Keith Richards you Now He likes to cook Yeah uh, British food, you know, famously, don't mess with his shepherd's pie. I mean, <laughs> he gets—he's been known to resort to violence if you mess with his shepherd's pie. But I'd like to make, you know, some traditional, like, like a meat pies with, 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 with Keith. Uh, and I'm working on it. Um, I'm, I'm. It's, it's a thing to do. It's like the, the one thing left on my bucket list, basically. <laughs> and uh, I, 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 I hope we can do that someday.
1: My wife would kill me if I didn't ask you about the taste, cause it's her mm. favorite show. Is that something that was like a bit of a, a like a, a, a leap of faith for you to take? Cause it's a different sort of show than your other TV products. You know, it's
2: always a quality of life question with me whether or not I'm going to do a thing. Uh, a, could I survive doing a big noisy network reality show Is a, was, was a concern. Um, honestly, um, I'm, I'm good friends with Nigella Lawson and Ludo and Marcus. So it was, uh, uh, I knew I'd have fun hanging out with those guys. Mm-hmm. But I did. Uh, I had three happy years where I mean, it was tremendously fun doing the show, but the way they convinced me to do it, and this is what kind of a whore I am. It wasn't the money. Though that's always important. Yeah. It was, I jokingly said, look, if they put me up when I was talking to my agent, I said, if they put me up in the Chateau Marmont for a month while they do the show, I'll do it. <laughs> I love that hotel. Okay? Yeah. I love that hotel. I travel. I change, you know, constantly changing hotels, changing countries. To spend an entire month at the Chateau in the warm, dark embrace of my favorite hotel in the world uh, was just irresistible. And with the fact that they said yes, I was in. And I would have done it uh, happily. As long as you – there are many things I will do if you put me in the Chateau for a a few weeks. So the
1: key to your heart is a nice warm hotel bed. I'm a hotel slut, what can I tell you? All right. And thank you again for doing this, man. I really appreciate it.